It's lovely to see you all uh, this morning. I've got two gear sticks this morning. It's amazing, all these microphones everywhere. Anyway, I'll be able to change gear as the sermon goes on. I've never been able to do that before, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, I went to Theological College. I know that's amazing because I'm a rector, but it's true. I went to uh, Theological College over 20 years ago now, and one of the Uh, things which I can remember most about Theological College is our mission and evangelism uh, classes. This is, you know, we went to college to change the world and as far as I was concerned back then, the only lectures worth listening to were your mission and evangelism ones because that's what they were about and I wanted to be part of uh, the world changing, um, the world following Jesus. So that was my big thing. And the great thing about the mission and evangelism classes, it was really quite simple because they just gave, we, they taught us about the three P's of evangelism. And uh, at the time when I was learning, I thought, gosh, this is great, the three P's of evangelism. I've just got to choose my favorite P and off I go. Sorry, that didn't come out right. But anyway. Um, <laughs> So the first P which I learnt about was this evangelism called presence evangelism. Uh, Presence is just when you're present with the people. You're with the people. You don't speak much about God in presence evangelism. Uh, You're just there living every day, uh, day in, day out with the people in your community. You live as a Christian but you don't really speak much about Jesus much. And then the second form of evangelism, I hadn't really heard of that one, if I'm honest with you. The second form of evangelism was proclamation. Now, I'd heard of that one. That's when you tell the story of Jesus. And you probably tell your own story as well about how you met Jesus. I thought, oh, yes, that that sounds a bit better. For that one, that's good. And then the next one I heard about was persuasion. Now, I used to be a salesman, and one of the things which I used to have to do was persuade people. So I thought, oh, this is, this is great. I used to sell life insurance, and yeah, bad luck if you bought from me. Anyway, um, although it was with the widows, they're quite a good, they were quite a good company. I'm sure they are now. But uh, persuasion, uh, that's when you go about converting people. So you persuade people to follow Jesus. You reach a fantastic level in evangelism where you've got the ability to convince people about Jesus. I liked uh, this a lot. It was straightforward, you know. Uh, all the, I've got my three Ps now. So I knew it was presence, proclamation, and persuasion. However, there were some very spiritual people at college, you'll be pleased to know, and uh, they started to talk about two more Ps. I thought, wow, there's more Ps in evangelism. So uh, the one they, the, so the super spiritual guy started talking about it, go, oh yes, what about prayer? Prayer. If you want to know a, a worthy answer in any Christian setting, talk about prayer. Okay. So they were going, the worthy ones were talking about prayer. I thought, oh yeah, yeah. Because I bet, actually, if we think about our lives and how we became Christians, those of us who are Christians, I can bet you can think of a few people who prayed for you to get to the point uh, where you are now. So prayer, yeah, I thought prayer's uh, very important. And then the other, other, other P was from the charismatics. You know, the, these are the guys who are a bit scary at college, and they kept on going on about power evangelism, power evangelism. I thought, wow, that sounds great, power evangelism. I'd like to do that. It's sort of like evangelism in the power of a Ferrari. No, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, whoa, 
that takes it up another notch that you're doing evangelism, but the Holy Spirit is uh, doing it too. And then just this week, actually, I've learned of another P in evangelism. Just so you know, there's another P in evangelism. So tomorrow, when you go to work, you can talk about all these P's in evangelism. And that's producing, producing um, um, disciples. So these people who are producing evangelists are like the ultimate you know, these are the ones with tattoos and big muscles because they produce disciples. They don't just make Christians, they produce uh, disciples. So those are the top-ranked things. So I used to think, oh, you had to rank all of these in order. You pick a P out, and the higher up the order, you know, that's, that, that makes you sort of a much better uh, minister, a more effective uh, minister. So for me, this evangelism called presence evangelism just sort of didn't hit it, you know, just have to be there. That's not really evangelism. Anyone can just be there. That's not sort of uh, the way to do it. If I want to be a great church leader, I don't just want to be a presence evangelist. I thought it was quite unsatisfactory. In fact, I thought it was quite weak. I used to scoff at it in lessons. I used to scoff. I used to go, scoff, like that, <laughs> at it. I thought this was uh, for people who are a bit scared, you know, the failures when it came to evangelism. Oh, I'm not really very good at it, so I'm going to do presence evangelism. Um, it's the fluffy people. Fluffiness. If you're into fluffiness, that's what it felt uh, to me. Sort of a little bit too scared to speak about Jesus. For me at that time, it was all about proclamation and persuasion and power. I wanted to be part of the solution to win people for Jesus. And so I went to the top of the market. I was all about persuading people to become Christians. And I was going to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And J. John and Billy Graham had better watch out. Here comes Richard Cornfield. All I can say is, what a fool, what a fool I was. Because these three Ps, or five Ps, or six Ps in evangelism, are not meant to be a competition. These are just sort of observations about how evangelism is done, and a recognition that evangelism takes many different shapes and forms, and goes at lots of different levels, depending on your community and where you're at. It's not an either or, as I thought it was. It was a both and. And in actual fact, what I've discovered in the 20 odd years since I studied in that mission and evangelism class is that presence evangelism, which I dismissed so quickly, could quite easily be the most profound and significant way to evangelize and especially transform society because I have discovered it isn't fluffy it's t well it is a bit but it's tough though as well fluffy toughness it's real and uh, this first model of evangelism is what the first model which Jesus highlights in his ministry we've got it here this morning he gives it another name he doesn't call it presence evangelism because he knows that's a rubbish name he calls it salt and light we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to be salt and light. As simple as that. Jesus said it back then. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And the Holy Spirit this morning is whispering into our hearts to all of us. And he's saying to all of us, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He's saying it to us as a congregation. We're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. This salt and light phrase in our reading this morning comes from 
perhaps the most famous sermon which has ever been preached in Matthew uh, 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I think, I think of it personally when I read it through of the impossible sermon. Gosh, Jesus preaches in a tough way. If you haven't read it all the way through for a while, that's your homework this week. Have a look at Matthew chapter 5 and onwards, this Sermon on the Mount, and see what I mean. It is impossible. What Jesus expects of his followers is really difficult. But remember, the big secret of Christianity is, with God, all things are possible. So we're just 13 verses into this sermon, right at the beginning of this uh, sermon of Jesus. And already, I need to tell you, in the first 13 verses, Jesus had revolutionized things by telling the crowd that God is the one who blesses the unlikely ones. So those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourners, the meek, the persecuted. How profound and challenging. God's blessing doesn't seem to be for the rich, for the happy, for the successful, those at the centre of things. It's in the place of those with no influence, not in the place of influence. This is the sermon of the upside-down kingdom, the most challenging sermon ever preached. I want to be careful here because I I want to say something, and I just want to say it in the right way, but I I say it in deep love and uh, just joy at being part of this church. But a thing I often hear in this church, and I have said, I've gone to meetings in the diocese and other places and say this type of thing. I say, we would like this church to be a church of influence. There's a few people I know in this church this morning who said, oh yeah, we want this church uh, to be a church of influence. When I hear this uh, said, uh, though, I often, I say it myself and I often hear it said about people from our church being in the top rooms, you know, in Edinburgh, in top rooms of society, being those influential people, those maker and shakers of uh, society. And I do get that. I think it's great. And I'm not speaking against that because Jesus needs his followers everywhere. He says for us all to be salt and light wherever we are. So he needs us to be everywhere. And if you look in the Old Testament, God especially used people, his people, uh, in the top rooms of society. We just need to look at Joseph when he was in Egypt. We need to look at Esther, how she saved her people, and Daniel, how he was uh, when he was in power. But I do want to say, if we really mean that phrase, that we want to be a church which influences people, which influences society, if we want to have a real and profound uh, sort of kingdom of God influence, We actually don't go up, we go down. Because this is the place of God's influence, Jesus' influence. It's those with nothing where we'll get the most influence. It's the homeless, the poor, the broken, those with no voices, the migrants, the refugees, the unglamorous, those with learning or emotional or movement difficulties, those with mental health who's not in the best form, the bullied and the persecuted. And at the beginning of this sermon in Matthew 5, that's how Jesus is imagining his followers to be. He's imagining a group of disciples who are made up of the people who are nothing of society. That is where his blessing is to be found. And I don't think we should rush over it, but we need to note it. As we're sat here this morning, we need to note it. That is where the influence is in God's room. It's with the nobodies. It was those at the the top table, if you think about it, they were the ones who found a way to get rid 
of Jesus. It was those so-called uh, with influence who manipulated and politicised Jesus in such a way that it eventually got him killed. The top table tends to look after itself because it can. The bottom table is completely different because it can't look after itself. And because of this, those are the people who Jesus explains at the start of his sermon he wants to bless. And it's to these nobodies that Jesus entrusts this first model of presence evangelism too. Jesus is picturing a world which is going to be tough for the followers of him. He's picturing a world of poverty and persecution and pain. It's not an aspirational world which Jesus is thinking about here when he's thinking about people who are salt and light. It's not a beautiful world of those American evangelicals who've got this perfect life or bishops who sit in their palaces or um, um, people on the God channel who are promising everything but delivering nothing. He's picturing a world where it's going to be hard to be a Christian. In this difficult place, Jesus calls his followers to be evangelists by saying to them, be salt and be light. Despite it all, Jesus is saying, in your difficulties, you can still point people to the kingdom. I know there's people here this morning who don't feel worthy enough, who feel as though they completely mucked it up, who feel as though they're a nobody. And Jesus is saying, despite everything, to you this morning, you can point people to my kingdom. You've got everything in you which you need. And it's at this point Jesus is doing something very significant and he's being very provocative as he often is and very revolutionary he is transferring a power base there's something very deeply theological going on in these uh, verses because up until that time it was Israel which were considered to be the salt and light God had entrusted the nation of Israel to be the salt and light for him to point people to God's kingdom that was what Israel's job in Isaiah 42 it says I the Lord have called you in righteousness I will take hold of your hand I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and light to the Gentiles and it says that in other places in uh, these verses and Jesus is saying now in this verse that this is no longer the job of Israel but it's going to be the job of his followers this means that the key work of the church becomes being the salt and being the light and like the Israel in the Old Testament we now somehow have the job of pointing people to the reality of God who loves them wants to free them, wants to forgive them, wants to heal them and bring them peace, wants to free them, wants to give life and wants to give a relationship. Jesus has transferred that job onto us. A way of describing us now is that we are a salt and light community. And it would seem that this idea of building a salt and light community was embraced by the church of the first few centuries because in the face of severe hardship, of deep persecution, of economic woes, the early church was salt and light. There's an early Christian document written about AD 120 to 200. I would try and tell you who who wrote this, but this morning at the 9 o'clock service I failed so uh, drastically that, just take it from me, there's somebody with a long name who wrote in the 2nd century uh, and observed this about how Christians are, how Christians are alike the community they live in, but also different from the community 
they live in. The difference, it says, between Christians and the rest of uh, mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians don't live in separate cities of their own, speak in any special dialect, not practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each person's lot has determined and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet and other habits. Nevertheless, the organisation of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable, even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behaviour is is more like transience. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but their own private lives transcend the laws. They show love to all people, and all people persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. So this idea of being salt and light was certainly very fashionable in the early church. That's what they do. They try to do it. And it was expressed in their behaviour and their hopes. Despite having difficult lives, they tried to do life the Jesus way. So I just want to open this up a little bit because it's really important as we think about our lives and where we stand on the salt and light things. What, does, what can we do? The early church seemed to manage it. So what, what do we do? So Jesus said simply in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, obviously, I'm assuming most of you, I know there's a couple of babies in, they might not know what salt is, but most of the rest of us know what salt is. I'm assuming we all use it unless we've got ridiculously high blood pressure and it's dangerous for us. Don't use it if that's you. Um, And uh, the other thing is, I've got a friend who's a kidney doctor and he says, we will all regret how much salt we've had in our diet when we get older. So just watch out. Now's a chance just to think about your salt intake as well as being uh, the salt of the earth. Anyway, in the ancient world, salt had three uses. Firstly, um, like our world, it was for taste. You know, sounds pretty obvious. Uh, salt makes uh, food taste better. We've got uh, somebody living with us at the moment who uses an inordinate amount of salt in his food. And I, I, our family doesn't really use much salt in, in their food. And it's shocking when you taste the difference. But for him, our food can taste completely disgusting because it's not got enough salt in it. So it makes all the difference. Have you tried crisps with no salt? If you like crisps with no salt, really, you do need to go for prayer ministry after, <laughs> after this. You know, salt makes, makes things... Uh, I'm being serious. You, you might be caught up in a health food obsession, which is yeah, very dangerous. Anyway, um, Jesus, obviously here, is wanting his followers to bring taste to the world about us. God's love is not bland. It makes all the difference. So Jesus is hinting that as his followers, we should be offering out some God flavours. John Stott used to say, Christians should be tangy. Quite like that, we should be tangy. So being salt is not a passive thing, but into our communities, 
uh, if it's not possible to use words, we behave and live in a way which helps people find things like justice if they're fighting injustice, find hope if their lives are hopeless. We go the extra mile to transform society. Salt was also used as a preservative. We don't really use it now as preservative because we've got fridges and freezers and things like that. Well, we might use it a bit, but not so much. But salt rubbed on meat back then could keep it going uh, for months. Salt rubbed on the meat uh, stopped the rot, basically, of the meat. So being salt in our communities is saying there is another way. Life doesn't have to be lived like this. Maybe the salty Christian is the one who helps stop the rot and helps society discover the best values to live by, who stands up when things aren't right and offers an alternative. And finally, salt, apparently in small amounts, because if you use it too much, it can kill the crop, but in small amounts, it helped uh, as a fertilizer and so aided the growth of plants and crops. And maybe the idea here is that Christians enhance God's works uh, in the world just by being there. If we're present, we help things uh, to grow and God's kingdom uh, to be revealed. And for Jesus, the important thing is that we're intentional about this. Because if we stop being salty, he says, we become useless, only good for being thrown away. Uh, now, I know there's going to be chemists in peace and G's this morning, and they will tell me that salt never loses its saltiness. I know, I've read a book with about 200 pages explaining to me how salt doesn't lose its saltiness. Although you could go to the Dead Sea, you can bang it around a bit, and it does lose its saltiness, but that's very rare. It's because it's deformed a bit, that salt, apparently. But let's just remember, this is just a metaphor here, okay? It's a metaphor, we're using it as English, we understand, understand what it was. We are to be in society making a difference, maybe doing those jobs which others have given up on, getting involved in areas of life nobody is interesting, showing love when others want to give up. Just think about the immigration uh, things which are going on at the moment. We're to use our following of Jesus in a way which makes society uh, a better place to be and more hopeful place to be. So we're in the thick of it uh, with the homeless, if you like, with the refugee, with the oppressed, with the sick, with the vulnerable. We're the ones helping and supporting and making phone calls and putting ourselves out. We're the ones saying, if we see injustice, this must stop. I'm going to expand more on this in a moment, but I just want to talk quickly about love, because you see in verse 14, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under bowls. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Even though we might be tempted to hide because it's hard and complicated and we might be ridiculed for our faith or we might even be passed over for promotion or we might have to explain ourselves in a way which makes us uncomfortable because we follow Jesus and we might get some embarrassed feelings about this. These verses tell me there is no hiding place. There is completely no hiding place because we are called to dwell on a top of a hill and we're not to be hidden away in a valley. We're to shine out brightly on the top of the hill like Jerusalem would have done all those years ago. The way we live our lives out will simply shine out that we belong to God. We are not hidden under a bowl. We are a lit candle. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Many of us will know that. In other words, I think he's saying, be salt and light. Live your lives in a way where Jesus naturally comes out of your faith 
and can just naturally be seen. Jesus says in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So how we live our lives can help people who don't know God to glorify God. Just being present in a community and being involved and living our lives alongside others can uh, change things in an incredible way. Sometimes words are not possible, but actions always will be. I was ordained almost, I think it is almost 20 years to the day, if not it's before one day before or after. So 20 years ago, I was ordained and knelt in front of, uh, of a bishop, Bishop of Tewkesbury. And one of the continual themes of my 20 years of, uh, of uh, ministry has been the decline of the church, both in numbers and confidence. I must say, though, my own journey through the church in those last 20 years is I've only been part of churches which have been growing and uh, it's been completely wonderful for me to be part of communities where people do come to faith and do choose to follow Jesus. So I do know that even though there is a big narrative of decline, I know that people are still choosing to follow Jesus. But it's obvious, we're living at hard times for the church. We bang on about it enough week by week and hard times to be a Christian. It's not easy to share our faith in communities which are more and more drawn to things like materialism and atheism and just we're, too, we're not bothered. We couldn't really be bothered with Christianity at all. I was with a church minister yesterday who's been at this kind of work longer than I have and we talked about this. How can we keep going when it seems easier to retreat inside our churches and have a nice little protective love cuddle uh, than to, actually that doesn't sound nice does it, but it seems easier to retreat inside our churches rather than out with. It's easier to condemn a culture rather than to engage with it. It's easier to be apart from the world rather than engage with its divergent viewpoints and lifestyles. And yet both of us as we spoke in our own ways know that isn't the answer, even though it's easy to do that. That's not the way of salt and light Christians. Somehow, we need to find a way to be involved. However, both of us, when we were reflecting on how the world is and uh, uh, right now, uh, we both reflected on it's probably the hardest time we've been uh, ministers. The, the news over the last few weeks, I think, has been appalling. The news after, over the last few months... The good news is few and far between. Just last week, Joe Cox's terrible murder. When you read about her, she just seems the most tremendous and outstanding uh, person. A person who, you know, was like the salt of the earth. She fought uh, for the refugees, and she just gets murdered in broad daylight. Then we've got the, uh, the nightclub, the gay nightclub, terrorist atrocity over in Orlando, and the murder of Christina Grimmer, that sort of American uh, voice contestant who just got murdered for no reason whatsoever. And then we've got the European referendum where everyone just seems to be telling lies to each other. And so the truth doesn't seem to be what we're going to be voting on, and it seems extremely complex. And then it's, that's created this sort of negative narrative on politics at the moment uh, across the UK. We've got the refugees crisis, which is going to get worse. That's not going to get better as much as we might like to think we can make it better. But it's going to get far worse. And we've got Syria and we've got ISIS confusing us the whole time. 
time. The list goes on and on and on. It's tough times. Value systems seem to have gone to pot. Fear and anxiety and anger seem to have gripped our communities. Things are happening uh, that are, and are becoming normalized, which are just terrible. Our world is in trouble. Our communities are in trouble. And Christians have only one option in all of that, and that is not to retreat. We cannot retreat. We can't enter into that condemnation process. We can't go into that I told you so kind of narrative. But our only option is to do simply as Jesus asked us to be, to be salt and light, to carry on praying for our communities, to carry on living in our communities, putting Jesus first, to carry on getting involved and helping and supporting our neighbours, to carry on being generous by going the extra mile. If we retreat The rot will then set in. If we get involved, if we stand up against evil and what's wrong, if we speak peace instead of hatred, if we practice love instead of violence, if we go for being generous rather than being mean, if we share our bread rather than taking more for ourselves, we might just be able to help our communities find a different story. We might help give them a glimpse of that salt and light kingdom. None of this, of what I'm talking about, is glamorous work at all. It is not glamorous. This is, you know, this is why you want to be a persuasion evangelist, because that's a bit more glamorous. You get money on the plate and everything. This, you don't get money on the plate. This is hard, roll-up-your-sleeves work. But if our homes and schools and offices and workspaces and families, uh, if, if we choose to go for kindness and hospitality, we're choosing salt and light and living the way Jesus said we can solve this. Living as salt and light is not easy, but it does give people glimpses. Struck by uh, reading something yesterday by uh, Eugene uh, Peterson just about what it means to be part of a Christian community and what it's been like for the people of God for so many years now. So he says 1,800 years or so before uh, uh, of Hebrew history, capped by the, a full exposition in Jesus Christ, tell us God's revelation of himself is rejected far more often than it's accepted, is dismissed by far more people than embrace it, and has been either attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it's given witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, Enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived all these cultures and civilization, but always as a minority, always marginal to the mainstream, never statistically significant. Salt and light keeps us going, keeps us focused. You could say this is what uh, soul food is. Soul food is simply a salt and light uh, ministry. Can I just ask you to pray for soul food? If you can remember at 5.30s every Saturday just to offer an arrow prayer up to God. We had a lumpy night last night and and it was it was it was it was you know it was fine but it wasn't quite right. We only we weren't able to really share uh, ourselves as we'd really like to do. There's a few sort of sparks of God going on but only, only a little bit. And, and it was difficult. And, and we're trying to draw alongside people. And yet it was, it was hard, hard going. And it's not like that every week. But it was last night. So if you could remember to pray 
that would be that would be great. We started this ministry just over two years ago, and I was given a glimpse very quickly of what it was about because it was very joyful the first few weeks. It sort of really grew very quickly, and then one week a, a Polish guy just pushed me against the wall and wanted to know why I was doing this, and I told him, you know, it's because we love the community, we want to be, we want to help you, and he pushed me again, says I don't believe you. It's more than that. I said, yes, it is more than that because I I love uh, Jesus and I'd like you to know uh, Jesus as well. And he goes, Jesus can possibly love me and I said yes he can he loves absolutely everyone and you know gave him a little bit of the gospel and he just walked out because he couldn't cope with with that and I must say most of the people we deal with at soul food don't really respond to the gospel they like it they like the fact that they're getting a nice meal and all that kind of stuff but it's only very few people who really get what we're about and that's completely fine because we're doing a salt and light ministry. It's like Eugene Peterson says, not everyone's going to get it, but some people will get it, and it will completely uh, transform their lives. Transforming society is an eternal work of God, and when he calls us to be salt and light, he's inviting us to be part of his transformation, to experience it as he experienced it. But as with all good things, it's something which is going to take time, it takes sweat and tears, and some people change, and most don't. We can help with some people, with others it's going to be much harder. So Jesus calls us to this kind of evangelism, and its technical name is presence evangelism. And it's key, it's where we become the salt and light of Jesus. And we don't just do this um, uh, for a while, if we follow Jesus, this is our lifelong calling. We are called every day to be salt and light. It's a daily question we can ask ourselves with our heads on the pillow as we're just waking. You know, we can, we can pray, Lord, how am I going to be salt and light today? That's the kind of prayer which changes the world. You might find yourself during that day suddenly getting involved in fighting injustice when you weren't expecting to or it could be you just go and feed next door neighbor's cat you might find yourself thinking oh i'm going to change careers or it could be you get into work and just decide i'll make my team coffees this morning make it a bit easier for them it might be that you start getting a feeling of wanting to change a community or you just decide i'm going to try and be a friend to somebody who might be a little bit lonely this salt and light stuff is stuff which journeys with us day in, day out. And Jesus says to us, can we be salt and light for him? But it's not easy. It's not straightforward. We're inviting to live in a completely different life. But actually, it's the life where Jesus really inhabits and calls us to be part of. I just want to end with something called, it's a Franciscan prayer, and it's called a profound blessing. I just wonder if we can just bow our heads Let's just be quiet. Let's ask ourselves that salt and light question. Where's God? What's God asking us to do? How are we going to be salt and light?